Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The wide open spaces concept isn't quite what it's cracked up to be. Exactly 55 years ago, in December 1967... Listeners to Ideas were hearing this. I felt cooped in, in the wide open spaces, surrounded on each side by dangers. A man on a train from Winnipeg to Churchill, telling a story. The environment around me, while being vast in the physical sense, one could see theoretically a thousand miles. Then the man, the sounds of the train, and the clinking of glasses in the dining car are joined by another voice. And the Eskimos weather was And then another. One uh, It is most difficult to describe. It was extreme isolation. That 1967 documentary was called The Idea of North, and it was produced and narrated by Glenn Gould, perhaps Canada's most celebrated classical pianist. I've long been intrigued by that incredible tapestry of tundra and tiger which constitutes the Arctic and subarctic of our country. It was challenging, demanding, and complex radio back in the closing days of Canada's centennial year, and it still is. But there was method to any apparent madness. Gould's experimental approach to radio making was inspired by Baroque music, like this. This is Gould performing Johann Sebastian Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier. It's a perfect example of contrapuntal music, where multiple melodies overlap and diverge and dance with each other. had started to fly. Or even if you go, I would be in going During that time, the sun would set. Fifty-five years after it first aired on Ideas, we now present this special episode called Return to North, The Soundscapes of Glenn Gould. He told me that one of his favorite things to do was uh, get into the car at night and drive to um, truck stops where truckers would uh, be in those restaurants. And he would sit in a booth and eavesdrop on them. And that for him was great fun. In this episode, Ideas contributor Mark Laurie reinterprets Gould's contrapuntal radio to explore the life and thinking of its creator. Laurie talked with four people who were close to Gould in the 1960s and 70s and had first-hand experience of Gould's innovations in recording. By that point, we but weren't really working I wanted to take him a cactus. Margaret Pachu hosted a music show on CBC Radio and collaborated with Gould on his 1980 Silver Jubilee album. 
It was fascinating to watch him there. William Littler was the longtime classical music critic for the Toronto Star. In 1967, he paid a late-night visit to the CBC studio where Gould was editing The Idea of North. Littler was also Gould's neighbor in Toronto. One could use the word mystical about (laughs) Vincent Tavell, who died in 2014, was a notable television producer at the CBC and co-directed a documentary about Gould. I think radio gave him more of an opportunity to explore the mind, not just his mind. Lauren Talk was the audio engineer at Ideas and for the Idea of North, as well as for many of Gould's piano recordings. The two first met in 1950, when Talk recorded the teenage Gould doing his first piano recital at his father's studio. In contrapuntal fashion, these four voices each share their memories of Gould and reflect on his creative legacy. The North is not my favorite place in the world. Coming from sunny central New Jersey uh, and having lived, I'd say I lived in France for 10 years and then came to Canada, so uh, I, I, I knew nothing of the North. Uh, my sister, however, lives in Alaska in a place called Homer, which is an art colony and there are musicians and artists there. When I was living in France, I'd come back to the United States, back home to Princeton, and then flown over the, the North Pole and had seen my sister. And that was in December, uh, winter of about 1970-something. And it was the most enormously, to me, frightening, cold darkness I had ever seen. Um, and what I remember, well, I remember two things. The, the daylight being so short, and this little tiny sun at about 2.30 in the afternoon with no power whatsoever settling, and then this kind of blue light. And then at night, there were the most extraordinary northern lights I had ever seen this. And it was like somebody had a blanket and was waving the blanket all night long. And I only, I think I was there maybe four days or something like that, but it happened every night and they were all different colors. It was just wonderful. That was my experience of the north. So why? Glenn, who grew up in the beaches of Toronto, Canada, would have this affinity, I haven't the slightest idea. It may be, again, the stillness. He wanted if he to really, be part of something very large. Not. This is but part of the Arctic dimension of his imagination. The great open agitated. spaces, time and space, were one great maybe there was something in that, continuum of mystery. And he wanted a place in there somehow. That may sound a bit pretentious, but I think it was part of... One could use the word mystical about Glenn. He was careful not to articulate that. But he would have done, had he been 60 or 70, later, I don't know. That's one of the questions about Glenn. What would have happened had he lived past 50. He did for 10 days or whatever it was. But I think the fact is that he wanted to be part of something very big, very large. And I don't mean that as indicating any great pretensions. 
On the contrary, it's all very private. That's why the, the, the wonder of the North, his mystical North, it's 30 years I've lived here. It was so important to it. It was a big world. But still, you know, the ravines. We have many religious traditions that have language for this. I never heard Glenn use that language. What he thought privately, I don't know. There may be others with whom he did use language like that. But I don't think we could ever take his interest in the North narrowly. I think it's very open and wide and deep in its implications. Or perhaps you could say high. It was a heaven aspect of the thing. And he did love that dimension in Wagner. He did love that dimension in Richard Strauss and the German, great German romantic 19th century traditions. And he loved it in Bach. He was brought up with a very modest, kind of Protestantism, but it never had dismissed heaven. That tradition did not dismiss heaven, and it's associated with harmony, great music, and great deep respect for the unknown. I think those are all very important. I think it had nothing to do with North. Glenn. Absolutely nothing whatsoever. Search for what is I think it would have had to do with solitude. Letting that come out. And Glenn had this enormous fascination with solitude. A, he showed it in his own life. He loved to be alone, and he loved to work alone, and he loved to express his ideas, particularly on paper, alone. And so when we talk about North, what he's doing is he's imagining the solitude that is simply part and parcel of being in the north and i think that was the fascination was the was the idea uh, the idea of solitude not so much the idea of north it was the idea of solitude i think radio gave him more of an opportunity to explore the mind not just his mind but yours and to the listener he layers um ideas on top of each other uh he he juxtaposes those with your spiritual ideas or your or your emotional ideas or with just the way you think and he imposes these all on top the the composition is is structure is just startling solitude was one of the things that he believed in very strongly it once again generalizing from what was personally success, successful for him um, I think uh, creation in solitude is very logical. You don't want uh, distractions. And he eliminated distractions whenever he could. And so uh, he was interested in the phenomenon of solitude and in celebrating it. So he wound up with subjects that thematically reinforced his preoccupations. He told me that one of his favorite things to do was uh, get into the car at night and drive to um, truck stops where truckers would uh, be in those restaurants. And he would sit in a booth and eavesdrop on them. And that for him was great fun. And I think you, go, you can find the reflection of that in his uh, radio documentaries, the Solitude Trilogy. The idea of being able to eavesdrop on people who didn't know you were listening and to use what they said for your own purposes. But I think he was trying to devise by practical experience out of sound, which he understood very well through radio studios and the coming of tape, all the new technologies of sound, a kind of dramatic forms. 
it was fascinating to watch him there. He had edited uh, sequences, and he was showing me things. The journalistic and he he would his technician Lauren Tulk was there working with him, and he would have a pencil in his hand, and he would conduct. This voice and he was should be coming up, that voice should be coming down. This, and it was almost as though it were a musical performance. And for him, no it was a kind of musical construction. He interviewed these various people, people independently. They had not met each other. And then world. he created conversations. He created conversations with their voices. And the he took inordinate pride. He was once showing me a, a, show, um, a Richard Strauss documentary. And I've forgotten over a number of seconds he had done 200 edits. I mean, the, 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 somebody once defined... Genius is the um, infinite capacity for taking pains or capacity for taking infinite pains. If so, that was his qualification. He loved that detail and that sense of control he had over other forces. To him, it was a composition and he didn't write it so he'd be popular or so that it, people would enjoy it. He wrote it, he had something to say which is probably why most composers write what they compose because they have something to say. Uh, in his case, the language was a little different than black notes on paper, as Stokowski would say. It was words, real words on paper, and real thoughts, and real ideas, and real philosophy, and real imagination, but it was all there on paper. And Glenn Yes, it was polyphony. It was so overwhelmingly musical and um, ideas. Uh, Put them all hearing these voices and just like a piece the way they were intertwined, that it was, it was, in a way, it was also like voices you might hear in your head somewhere. Now, I don't want to <laughs> say that I hear St. Michael speaking to me or anything, but, but these are like voices. They're like the voices that are out there on, of all these millions of radio wa waves that have gone out into space. It was, it was really, um, it was the polyphony, it was the way the, these voices blended. And also they had these curious accents, which I was not familiar with, you know, down east accents and all of that. Uh, I just thought it was absolutely beautiful. I never heard anything like that before. And I, I mean, I hear it and it doesn't have the same impact on me, of course, now. The name Glenn Gould is now pretty much inseparable from that of Johann Sebastian Bach. Some critics have pointed out that Gould brings a kind of northerliness to his interpretation of Bach's keyboard music, piercing the listener like the cold. Here is Gould performing Bach's fugue in A-flat major from Book One of The Well-Tempered Clavier.
the radical conservative thing, it's such a dreadful cliche, but it is a useful one nonetheless. In fact, I think the essence, if one can speak of essences in a complex and evolving personalities like Len, was a kind of constant search to balance traditions. He grew up in a city with a culture of particular kind of Protestant culture, a particular kind of academic culture at school, teaching culture, and a fairly modest business culture in his, that his father was involved with. You could call that conservative. It certainly was traditional, thought to be traditional. Sundays were Sundays, and they were reserved for family life by and large. He lived on a street with quiet houses, people living what seemed to be publicly quiet lives. And that was the model of the Toronto society that he was aware of. Glenn grew up with recordings. He grew up with the choirs, although I don't know how often he went to the great Mendelssohn choir performances, but we all did. So we grew up with Bach, with Handel, Mendelssohn, and that was a very rich foundation, radical in its historical context and enormously influential. It gave people a sense of standard. Glenn grew up schooled in counterpoint. That's how musicians were trained. They learned it. They may have been bored by it. They may have been irritated, but they studied fugues. They had to... And Glenn made a fugue, didn't he? <laughs> made a production of a fugue. He saw it as a joke, and I think probably a lot of his teachers saw it as a bit of a joke to do it that way. But at the same time, they understood why there were fugues, what fugues meant. Infinitely open-ended. Infinitely open-ended. And then I think that's the culture that he came to and accepted. He didn't struggle with that. He grew with it, and he changed according to what it suggested to his imagination and his talent. He evolved. He was never a prisoner of that. I always thought of Gould not primarily as a recreative musician, but as a creative musician who happened to be a performer. Now, he, we all know that he did write music, and, and, and I talked to him on occasion about that, and he said he stopped writing it because, of course, other people's music kept coming out through him. And, of course, Richard Strauss, in particular, in his, for, in his first and only string quartet. Uh, so uh, it was the same answer, really, that I got from Sir Ernest Macmillan, the great Canadian conductor of an earlier generation. Um, I, I met him when he was very old, and I was very young. And, uh, and I asked him why he stopped composing. And he said, it's because I, my head is too full of other people's music. And that was part of the problem with Gould, that uh, although he had a creative impulse, it wasn't an original impulse. His originality arose from the way he reinterpreted other people's music. Because it was not a question of trying to replicate something, he had to rethink it because of that essentially creative quality of his mind. And he didn't want to do anything the same way twice. Um, and that's one of the reasons he hated live performances, ultimately. Um, he said, 
I don't like the non-take-two-ness of it. You can't go back and tell the audience, sorry, I'd like to try this again in a different way. It just doesn't work that way in live performance. And he was always trying to come up with different solutions to his musical challenges. So, as I say, it all comes from a basically creative attitude toward music, which made him quite special uh, among musicians. It, of course, meant that some of his performances sounded eccentric to people because they were so completely rethought. And um, that's one of the reasons, I think, that um, some of us... I, I certainly accused him of a lot of eccentricity that, in retrospect, I think was unjustified. It was a, just a different way of approaching. And if we'd, frankly, lived in the Romantic era, I don't think he would have been considered eccentric at all, because, for different reasons then, and largely in terms of personal ego gratification... Performers were always judged by their originality and their differentness. But in the age of recording, we live in a much more homogenized era, and Gould's playing was not homogenized. He did, in fact, have such rapt attention to the process of making the music through his hands, uh, he took you into the process of performing that music. That's why you sometimes felt that he was making it all up as he went along. And somebody said that's what Bach did too. It was this, that real ability to feel that music freshly each time. Glenn never recorded anything without completely, I mean, using the word dissecting is a wonderful thing because that's what he did. He took the music part by part, all apart, and then put it all back together again because he said that way I understood what the composer was saying. And... His interpretation to me was that music was a language. It's just as much a language as English or German. It's a language. It's a way of expressing something inside of us. And it's a matter of appreciating that language. The actual idea of, of recording rather than uh, playing in live concerts was a function also of his personality, I believe. Um, he told me he, he really just was very uncomfortable going out on stage. It wasn't just the non-take-two-ness of the concert experience. He had a kind of stage fright. He, he wasn't very comfortable out there. And then he, come up, he came up with this theory that the recording medium is going to take over and concerts are going to be dead by the end of the 20th century. Well, I, I think he was speaking for his own personality and his own personal needs. Uh, as events were to prove, he said, certainly did not speak for the rest of us. There's something about the social aspect of music, about being in a concert with other people, listening to something that is only happening now. That's quite exciting. Although he called it a blood sport. He said people go out to a piano recital the way they go to a bullfight, hoping the bull will gore the bullfighter, and likewise hoping that you're going to make a mistake. And that's another reason why he um, didn't like uh, live concerts, because he felt that, uh, he said, most artists like to make a recording after they've done a big tour. So they've gone over and over the repertoire and worked it out. He said, I feel exactly the opposite because I found that when I was playing for audiences and certain effects would work, I would play to the gallery. And it coarsened my interpretations. It didn't refine them. And I find it much more satisfying to go into the record studio when I am not playing to anybody else but myself and the goal of the music. 
And so it was an, entire, an entirely different attitude. I mean, in my student days, I heard people like Arthur Rubinstein. He adored the live concert. He adored the interaction with the audience. And he would uh, play encore after encore, just reveling in that experience. Well, for Gould, that was not a comfortable experience. He felt that he was the Christian and they were the lions. He adored his audiences, for the most part. But he always felt that you were, the audience was sitting there waiting for him to make a mistake. I don't know why he felt that way, because I'm sure it was. But he always felt that they were waiting to see him make a mistake. And uh, so that always scared him. He was always terrified that he would make a terrible mistake. And, you know, it would be immediately caught up on by the, by the audiences. I don't think I've ever really seen that happen. But it was in the back of his mind. So that's why I've often said, and said to him that he moved from the from the live stage to the electronic stage which gave him a much wider audience and also a much better appreciation of what he wanted to do he didn't like being noticed in a crowd he would be a bit furtive which didn't mean for a moment that he didn't want to be glenn gould <laughs> didn't want to be uh, if you like famous but I think he wanted to be famous for what mattered to him, which is to make this kind of musical life, this kind of musical statement about life that I think is inherent in his music. The show-off of aspects of music making, we know from everything he said about it, they didn't really like that very much. And he would have been happy not to do it in a concert if he could avoid it, and he got out of concerts for that reason. I believed that. I saw it coming, he spoke about it. No surprise there at all. It's a curious mix of being very conscious of international status and celebrity and standard, and yet constantly trying out something new. Glenn Gould found inspiration for his contrapuntal radio technique in the layered melodies of Johann Sebastian Bach. Here he is playing Bach's Fugue in C minor from Book Two of The Well-Tempered Clavier. Listening to Ideas and a documentary called Return to North The Soundscapes of Glenn Gould by contributor Mark Laurie. You can hear Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca/slash ideas. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayat.
When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Glenn Gould, and this program is called The Idea of North. I've been intrigued for quite a long time now, really, by that incredible tapestry of tundra and um, tiger country, as they call it. Fifty-five years ago, in December 1967, Glenn Gould created a groundbreaking piece of radio called The Idea of North. Several years ago, I went north aboard a train known affectionately to Westerners as the Muskeg Express, Winnipeg to Fort Churchill, 1,015 miles, two nights, one day, four double bedrooms, eight sections, diner, and coach. And at breakfast, I struck up a... As Gould himself admits, he wasn't really much of a northerner. I've remained of necessity an outsider, and the north has remained for me a convenient place to dream about, spin tall tales about sometimes, and um, in the end, avoid. But the reclusive, perpetually bundled up Gould did cultivate an image of a solitary man who found inspiration in the barren winter landscape. All of a sudden, all the wagons are going to line up along the 60th parallel. Um, But I don't quite see the argosies of magic sail in the north. I think that we're going to have to adapt. The idea of north was a radical experiment in radio making, in which Gould layered the voices of people he interviewed, like melodic lines in a musical score, to create a sonic effect that lies somewhere between speech and music. And we all sat there, and of course, everybody was weeping away. There was the television cameras going up and down. Return to North, the soundscapes of Glenn Gould, features four people who knew Gould during his most creative period in the 1960s and 70s. Margaret Pachu, William Littler, Vincent Tavell, and Lorne Talk, by contributor Mark Laurie. Uh, I was the host of a classical music show called Listen to the Music, and we went on the air in Toronto and across the country in 1974. And, of course, we started playing anything and everything that we could, and a great deal of music by Glenn Gould because he was here and he was, you know, a local hero. So um, it wasn't really the first time that I had heard him. I can't remember that. My mother was a professional musician. And she worshipped Glenn Gould and said he was the only pianist who really got to the soul of Bach. Um, and she had, she had many of his recordings f- from the 1955 uh, Goldberg Variations on, and she is the one who discovered, for me, Gould. But we did play all the time, any, anything, any new recording, uh, any uh, kind of segment that we would do on Bach, of course he was included. We had a contest. Uh, we often had contests and we would give away, you know, the, the companies would send us, Sony and people would send us uh, free rec- recordings. And um, we had some very curious recordings of early Schoenberg cabaret songs. And um, we decided to play them and we put them on the air. 
and we would give them away to the first caller who knew what they were. Well, of course, you may or may not know that when you're on the air and nobody calls, you have to fill and make up stories. So, in fact, nobody called because nobody knew, you know, who was who had recorded this. And um, the program came to an end because it was we recorded earlier than what you heard in Toronto, right? So the people in Toronto would just be beginning to hear the program, but we had finished recording it. So the phone rang in the studio, in fact, and it was Glenn. And um, we said, oh, hi, how are you, and whatever, and whatnot. And he said, well, I recorded those, uh, those uh, Schoenberg Cabaret songs. And we said, yes, we know that, Glenn, and we were going to tell everybody and give them away as, as a present. And he said, and we said, but nobody called. And he said, well, that's all right, then just send me the recordings, which we did. <laughs> so here was this guy with boxes of his own records, and he wanted two more, which we did. When we read his liner notes on the back of his albums, they seem full of long, convoluted sentences. Well, he spoke the same way in sentences and paragraphs. The mind was so in control of what he thought and what he had to say that um, he spoke the way most people would like to be able to write. And when he did call, he wouldn't say, this is Glenn Gould. He, he would say, uh, this is uh, Theodore Slutz of the East Village Other, assuming one of his comic persona. Um, I, I don't think he was half as funny as he thought he was uh, when he did that. Uh, he always thought he was wonderful about his uh, foreign imitations. Um, uh, Karl-Heinz Klopfweiser uh, was one of them. And I, I said, you, you've got the German accent um, uh, quite well, uh, down well. How, how is your vocab, uh, your German? And he said, I don't speak German at all. I have the accent, but I have no vocabulary. So uh, these were things that he did just for his own amusement. And, and as I say, he thought he was hilariously funny. Oh, that doesn't bother me at all. That's, <laughs> I'm quite used to, to hearing other voices. And, and I see, I enjoyed that enormously. I love, you know, Rich Little and all of these people. who I have such admiration for people who can do uh, voices. I think that it's just great to do that. And he, he, he was so happy doing this. Um, uh, with Theodore Slutz, I kept teasing him about wanting to, you know, who had the, that, that Theodore had the, um, the T-shirt, the Brando, and the kind of the village voice period, the 50, early 50s period. And, um, well, and James Dean a little bit, and Chet Baker, they're all in this. This is that look of, the, of 1953, sort of. So I kept teasing him about going on Johnny Carson. In his in his, in his T-shirt, <laughs> and he just thought that was the funniest thing he ever heard of. You know, oh no, Margaret. Because we often did things at the CBC, he uh, I, I was broadcasting as a commentator, and he, of course, producing uh, performances. Um, and he would say, oh, I'll give you a ride home, since of course he we we stayed in the same apartment building, and I always hated that because I thought it would be my last day on earth. He had a terrible habit when driving of facing you in the front seat as he talked to you. And why he didn't kill himself is one of the mysteries of his life. Anyway, uh, on this occasion, we drove home and uh, came up to the apartment building. He pressed the button and the car went into the subterranean uh, parking lot. And he was still talking. Um, and it was dark in there. Uh, there we were sitting in the blackness. He, did, he seemed oblivious of it. Um, and, and just kept talking. And eventually I realized that if I didn't get out of the car, we might spend hours 
in that subterranean hole. So I got out of the car and he got the hint and he, we walked into the elevator and, and he kept talking. And we got up to the third floor and I started to get out and he kept talking. So he was talking, 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 and we kept hearing this bzzz, bzzz, bzzz. It was the people on the higher floors who were trying to get the elevator. And of course they couldn't because Glenn Gould was talking to somebody on the third floor. And so I eventually extricated myself. I, what I should have said was, come on in and we'll finish the conversation. And I've always kicked myself. But on the other hand, I, I, I was thinking at the time, how will I get him out of my apartment if he keeps talking, you know, and I have to go out, some, out tonight. So I didn't do it. Uh, but nonetheless, I knew the man who uh, lived in the apartment right under him, Bill Vasey. He was with the CNIB. And he said, of course I could hear him through the, the floor, but I would never dream of complaining. Um, he, when I moved into the apartment building, uh, there was an index of people uh, with their names. This was in the old days before we were very security conscious. And it was, there was a Gould at the top name on that. The apartment building was in two wings and we were on, in the east wing. Um, but I noticed subsequently the Gould name was taken out. And for the rest of our mutual time there, it was blank. And uh, I asked him about that. He said, you don't know the, how, e- how hard people or try to find me. And, and um, on another occasion, when I had written something and described him as the Hermit of St. Clair, he phoned me and said, you can't give people my address. I said, Glenn, St. Clair goes all the way across the city. And he said, yeah, you don't know how invented these people are. He was really quite worried about people knowing where he lived and how to track him down. He didn't want to be known by his, the rest of the people in the building or by anybody else that he was in the building. Uh, so as a neighbor, he was quite easy to deal with unless you were in the apartment right under him, in which case you had a constant serenade when he was in the mood uh, at all hours of the day. But Bill Vasey was himself a pianist and he wasn't going to complain. I had an experience with Glenn. It was extraordinary. I, I had to be in Montreal for some work, working on some production things with people in Montreal at the National Theatre School, which I was much involved in its evolution. And I was flying to back to go back to Toronto, I think it was Friday night. And terrible fog over Montreal, a really rotten time. I believe it was November. And we got stuck downtown in a cab to the airport with, well, it was Bob Fairfield, who was the architect of the Stratford Theatre and whom I already knew very well. And we'd done our thing down in Montreal. And I said, Bob, I don't think we're going to get to our plane. I don't want to sit at the airport all night. I can just stay overnight and go and train tomorrow morning or whatever. I don't have to be back next day. And he said, well, his wife was going to meet him, so he would go ahead on chance that we'd get to the airport. So I got off my hotel, and he went off. And I got into the hotel, and I did what I had to do, and I was settling down, turned television on eventually. And I got the first news report. It was the biggest Air Canada crash to date. One of the giant, new giant planes. In the Montreal airport, it went up and went straight down. And of course, I thought of Bob right away. And it turned out, I discovered this the next day. Uh, he never got to the airport out, then it was okay. But the fact is, that I was there that night and I got a couple of calls from people. They didn't have a passenger list. It was that soon, late afternoon, dark, November night kind of thing. 
And I got a call in the middle of the night, sometimes around three in the morning. And it was Glenn in Toronto. And he was, if you can imagine Glenn sounding angry, which is not something he, he did, but I knew there was an awful lot of tension in his voice. And he said, the plane crash, and your name was on it. You were on that plane. I told you never to fly. And I said, Glenn, you're talking to me. I'm here. In fact, he woke me up. <laughs> and I haven't seen the list. Well, he was quite right. The, my name was on the list, but it was another with the same rather unusual name, Tovel. There was somebody on that plane. Well, I told Glenn, I'm perfectly okay, and I'll talk to you in the morning, and I'm going to take the train, I think, tomorrow morning, and I'll be home. But his shock that he actually, I don't know whether he'd known other people who had been in the crash, but it seemed very, he was angry with me for doing that. Part of Glenn's need to control himself was partly extending with real feeling and sympathy and concern. He didn't like the idea that I'd be on a plane like that. Shortly after the idea of North, Gould's music was featured in Spheres, an animated film by the National Film Board of Canada, in which glowing orbs dance through a dark sky streaked with colors like the northern lights. Here's one of the pieces heard in that stark film, Bach's fugue in F-sharp minor from Book One of The Well-Tempered Clavier, as performed by, of course, Glenn Gould.
before he died, or the day before he got a stroke. He phoned me because it was his 50th birthday, and he phoned me, and there was a, an article that appeared in the New York Times. He had to read me the entire article, which was like a page and a half or two pages long. And he read me the entire article, which took a half, three quarters of an hour, at least on the phone or more for him to read it to me. He then hung up the phone and called Jesse and read it to her, and he phoned someone in New York and read it to them, and he'd phoned uh, Chicago and read it. He was very thrilled with the article and pleased with it, and he liked it. But that was the way Glenn was. Glenn used to phone me almost every day, virtually, at least once a day, I'd get a call from him. We were working less and less together in, those, in, in the latter part, but he still phoned at least once or twice a day. And I never heard from him all week. I had no, no calls, and I thought that was a little bit strange. And then on the Thursday night, I was at work and Raymond came into the studio where I was working and Raymond said he had some news for me. He thought I'd better, he'd better mention it. So that's how I learned. He came and told me that Glenn was in the hospital and by that point, by that time, he was comatose. There was no point going to see him because he, he was, you know, comatized at that point. So I never got to speak to Glenn, nor did I get to say goodbye. So. Um, naturally, I mean, for me, it was like losing a brother, you know, I, it was... Uh, I wanted to go to the hospital. Emotional, um, but it didn't have an enormous effect It on, was a Sunday, I think. By that point, we but weren't really working together. I wanted to take him a cactus we because I thought that, you know, um, so he wouldn't accept future. flowers, he wouldn't accept a plant, he, he didn't care about any of those things. Yes, so I thought the only you know, thing that I could again, take I, I, would be a solitary I mean, cactus it, that with its effect, the same uh, points would be pushing everybody off to get near him. If there was a flowering cactus, that's what I would have wanted to take to him. And I thought quite a bit about it, and I had to go, and I thought, well, I'll do it when I come back. And when I came back, he was dead. Exterior, it that was really very upsetting because exterior. I was within a whisker of at least getting there. And we were all, and that service in St. Paul's was dreadful. Just It was just dreadful. And then we didn't realize it, but we they had all the... Uh, yeah, there were, it was right, you know, it's practically across from where CBC was there on Jarvis Street. So we just all went over to the church, and um, they had... All of the television cameras from CBS and NBC and the BBC, everybody was there, and they were going up and down. And I, I didn't think you could do that in somebody's funeral like this. But anyway, um, Robert Aiken played a beautiful flute piece. I remember that. Um, anyway, the very end was the, was the aria, but he was humming in this huge building. And we all sat there, and of course, everybody was weeping away. Here was the television cameras going up and down looking at all of these people, and it was none of their business. But, of course, that's not true. He was a musician of the world. That's why they were there. But that humming is really loud, and, you know, that church is a huge church. That's not a little whatnot. And um, they turned it up full volume, and you could just hear him singing along. It's devastating. When we played One at the, the memorial service at St. Paul's Church here, this huge church, and this enormous crowd turned up. He was 50 enormous crowd. He died. We had no idea how many would he come. We came to the end, and the program had printed the necessary and bits of information sure about who would be doing what. He was and then it didn't say anything about how it would he close. Was very overweight. 
and we had contrived this. John Robertson had contrived this. We'd got this brand new recording of the the Goldberg. It had just come out. The CBC had had it on the air that week, I think, first time. (laughs) We got a very good sound equipment in the church, and the service concluded. It was total silence. Nobody moved. And we heard the aria. Nobody there will ever forget how that felt. Suddenly, everything that music represented to Glenn was there. The complete giving of the audience to the music. If you listen very carefully, you would hear just a little bit that they had not been able to erase from the tape. A little bit of Glenn's voice in the background. And for those of us who knew that, it was a moment of gentle humor coming into this transfixing moment. I treasure it as a memory. I think his record company was rather astonished to discover that he was selling more records dead than alive. Um, It's a little bit cynical perhaps to say so, but I'm in the cynicism business, so I shall. Um, Dying young is a great career move. It creates a legend around what might have been, and it also tends to put into high relief what was. And I think that dying at the age of 50 with all sorts of possibilities ahead uh, made him all the more interesting to people. Um, You know, nobody's ever going to be perhaps as famous as a film actress as Marilyn Monroe, who died in her mid-30s. It's this aura of what might have been that's so powerful, uh, especially if the life itself has been an unusual one. And among performers, his was a very unusual life. He'd already created himself as a kind of legendary figure, And I don't think that was accidental. I think he knew that he was creating his own persona. I don't call it insincere, but I think it was conscious. For somebody who was so public, he was at the same time so private. And that has fascinated people endlessly. Um, And then, of course, you can always go back and listen to his music. So he's not dead. In that sense, he's still alive. So you can fantasize, imagine about the, 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 the might-have-beens, and at the same time you've got the reward of being still in touch with him as a musician. So that's very compelling. Um, so all this is not entirely surprising. Perhaps the level of it is surprising, that there is a real Glenn Gould cult out there. Um, but um, try to think of another musician in the so-called classical music world Um, uh, that has that kind. Perhaps Vladimir Horowitz approached it, uh, and and in terms of widespread popularity, arguably his was the greater. But nonetheless, uh, the life was less interesting, and certainly he was far less articulate about what he did, and far less telegenic. So the Gould was there at a time when the mass media were able to create a mass image uh, for him, uh, so that he was lucky in that timing. Uh, and uh, all, the, all of it fits together to me. Uh, it doesn't seem surprising, given the nature of the man, the, the nature of the posthumous response. Ooh. 
the open geography, the open wilderness, Arctic, if you like, northern, whatever that means, psychologically, uh, with an open-ended future, with no idea where we're going. Great question of the journey. What is the journey? I keep remembering he was only 50. He was still discovering himself as he got older. Most of us, I hope, do. You were listening to Ideas and to an episode called Return to North, The Soundscapes of Glen Gould. The voices you heard were those of Margaret Pachu, William Littler, Vincent Tavell, and Lorne Talk. We have a link to Glenn Gould's film adaptation of his Idea of North on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, as well as the NFB film, Spheres, featuring Gould's music. Special thanks to CBC Radio producer Anne Penman in Vancouver, to Robert Harris and to the Glenn Gould Foundation in Toronto. This episode was produced by contributor Mark Laurie, with additional help by Matthew Lazen Ryder. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.